Our scripture reading today is from Micah 6. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak the king of Moab devised, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Here we are. I got a little opening question for us, all right? Uh, what is the kindest thing that anyone has ever done for you? What's maybe one way you can think of that someone has cared for you so well that just meant the world? Uh, in just a couple of weeks, Nicole and I get to go up to Portland, Oregon to see my best friend Trey get married. Uh, and I got really excited when I heard they were engaged. I got also excited when he asked me to be his best man because uh, there's a lot of fun festivities with that. But most of all, I think I'm really excited to give that best man speech. Uh, I'm excited to you know, remember and recount all the ways that my best friend Trey like truly is, he's, he's the best. Uh, he is so kind, he's funny, um, he has a real sense for like what other people might need or what they might be feeling. Uh, he sacrificially loves. And so this question to me, what's the kindest thing anyone has ever done to me? I, I think of Trey for like, you know, all kinds of reasons. I think of a thousand and one ways that he has been so, so kind to me. But one story uh, maybe I didn't initially expect has sort of come to mind as I've been ruminating on, on this question. Uh, and it's this. Uh, back in middle school, we were on our way to summer camp. So if you can imagine, you're sitting on the bus ride, going down, and uh, we're sitting next to each other. You know, we're, we're good friends at this point. And, well, you guys have met a middle school boy before, right? Um, sometimes, sometimes we do things that just don't make sense. And what I was doing was uh, I was just kind of punching Trey in the arm. And he was kind of at first laughing with me as I'm just kind of grinning and punching him. But after minutes and minutes and minutes passed, he was eventually like, all right, man, that's, that's enough. Like, take it, take it easy, you know? And I just kept grinning and punching him in the arm. And 
I think, as I recount, it happened for probably maybe 30 minutes to an hour. It probably felt like 10 times that much to him. I don't know how that's possible, but it is. It somehow. And what a jerk move, you know? What a, what, what a knucklehead. Um, I like, you know, I had to later come and ask for forgiveness from Trey and, and receive that. He, he gives it freely. That's who Trey is. He's just so, so gracious. But I've, even after I was forgiven, I've like, you know, I held on to that pain that I caused uh, for, for years, you know? So what's the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Um, maybe, it's, maybe it's being forgiven for something. Maybe you've in some way harmed someone that you care deeply for uh, and had to like ask and receive forgiveness. So over the last handful of weeks, we've been in this series called Forgiveness in the book of Micah. And uh, there's really been like two major themes we've seen throughout these first five chapters. The first is this. Uh, God's message of judgment against Israel. And it's rightfully so, because we've heard about some of these egregious injustices that have been going down. Israel's leaders are exploiting their own people. Uh, Their prophets are willing to give promises of protection for those who are willing to line their own pockets. Neighbors are stealing land from neighbors, literally their inheritances. The wealthy are corrupt, the poor are oppressed, and and all of this is a very direct violation against God's law. And so Micah, uh, as God's mouthpiece, is, well, he's kind of, he's been bringing the heat, right? He's been telling Israel like it is um, on God's behalf. And then, so that's the first major theme But we've also heard interspersed throughout these first five chapters uh, some shimmering signs of hope, right? God's message of hope and forgiveness. Um, We've we've read of a shepherd king who is going to come, who's going to lead and even even carry his people. We've, We've read of promises of the Lord establishing his house and and peoples from many nations flowing to it in in peace, in submission, and and, and walking in the ways of the Lord. Um, God's even declared that while, yes, they're they're about to go into exile, he even promises he will redeem them. He, He will bring them out. And then last week in Micah 5, this is really cool, Micah 5 too, we read of of Micah prophesying of a future ruler who will be from of old, from ancient days, who will come from Bethlehem, approximately 700 years before Jesus was born in, you guessed it, Bethlehem. So that's pretty cool. This week we're turning to Micah chapter 6. And uh, sort of like we've been doing, we're going to take it piece by piece uh, and, and explore explore what this text says. And rather than three prepackaged sermon points, I'm going to have two questions for us to explore this text uh, together. And we've, these are ones we've been using in student ministry uh, on Wednesday nights. And so here are the questions. Who is God really? And the second is, who is, who is man really? Who are we really? Who is God really? And who are we really? So in verses 1 and 2, we read of, of God 
the creator and sustainer of the universe bringing an indictment against his own people. And so it says this, the Lord calls Micah here in verse 1, hear what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice, hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. And you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people. So the scene is set here, right? The, it's, a, it's a courtroom of sorts. And the plaintiff is the almighty and the defendant is wayward Israel. And there's even uh, some witnesses that are, are called to sort of witness and attest to the Lord's case. The, the mountains, the hills, and the enduring foundations of the earth. Which I don't know about you, but that's kind of a scary thought to me. To, 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 to be in a courtroom setting and can you imagine the one bringing charges against you? Being an all-knowing, all-wise, all-just God. It's kind of a scary thought, right? Romans 8, one of my favorite chapters um, of Scripture, asks most beautifully, if God is for you, who can be against you, right? If God is for you, who can be against you? But can you imagine for a moment just the inverse of that? If, if it's God who is against you, who can be for you? But is the Lord really against them? In verse 3, the Lord speaks through Micah. See some quotation marks. And here's what he says. Oh, my people which this is already very, very good news. Why? Because the Lord is bringing an indictment against his people. He is, he is calling them out, but the first words out of his mouth are words of warmth and relationship and, and hope, right? He, he still claims Israel as his own, even after all of that egregious injustice. So in other words, this is, this is not divorce court, right? God's indictment against his people is not for the sake of, of separation, but restoration, right? It's for the sake of, of reclaiming right relationship with his people. God, God's not against his people, not, not really. And so continuing on in verse three, oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Which, I don't know about you, but that, that's really interesting to me. Because uh, usually, you know, if you're in a courtroom setting and someone's bringing charges against someone else, you might expect to hear, I don't know, something about, you know, what the offending party did wrong, right? Like that would be the first words out of the mouth. But no, the Lord's first words are, again, ones of relationship. And then rather than first jump in and talk about all the things they've done wrong, he, he first looks to sort of himself in a way. Right? What have, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? See, one would think, if they were watching Israel, their actions, their attitudes, one would think, might be led to believe, that the Almighty had done his people dirty in some way. Apparently, to ancient Israel, relationship with God feels burdensome. They're, they're wearied by him. 
But, but is that true? Has, has God done his people dirty in some way? Has he done something to his people that they ought to feel burdened by him, wearied by him? How has God dealt with his people? Who is, who is God really? So continuing on in verse 4. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So God here begins to answer his own question, right? By reminding his people of who he truly is, what he has done for them, right? And he's not a God who has done something to his people, but man, oh man, has he done something for his people, right? God, God is basically saying here in this verse, oh, my people, remember the Exodus, right? Remember that you were in a house of slavery and did I leave you there? No, I, I brought you up. I brought you out. I, I freed you. I redeemed you. I, I even gave you faithful leaders to look after you just like you wanted. See, to, to Micah's uh, audience here, his original audience, the ancient Israelites, um, the exodus is to them what the cross of Jesus Christ is to us. Right? In other words, of, like, of all God's miraculous, mighty works that he's ever accomplished on his people's behalf, maybe this one most of all captures his heart of, of rescuing and saving and, and redeeming. To, to ancient Israel, this is, this is the kindest thing that anyone's ever done for them. Right? If ancient Israel were giving a best man speech, this would be the story everyone would be expecting to hear. It's like so foundational to their relationship. And so here in verse four, we're beginning to hear our question answered. Who is God really? Well, he's a God who frees his people. But that's not all. In verse five, God calls his people to remember something else. He says, oh, my people, again, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So two more true stories are, are called to mind here. The first is this, what, what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. So you can go read about this in Numbers 22 through 24. Uh, but basically, after Israel has been exodused and before they've made it to the promised land, Balak, the king of Moab, he sees this massive multitude of Israelites camping in his territory. And he's kind of freaking out, right? He sees them and he's like, they could totally annihilate me if they wanted to. And so he's, he's scared, he's freaking out. What does he do? He hires this pagan diviner, Balaam, who has a, a reputation for his words coming true, and he basically offers to, to pay him to curse God's people. And it's interesting that a pagan diviner sort of kind of responds to Balak, king of Moab, this is Balaam, saying basically, I mean, I'll go talk to the Lord. I'll, I'll tell you what he says, but, you know, kind of no promises. And so we see these three scenes that follow. Each time they, they go up to a mountain, to uh, Bemoth Ball, to Pisgah and Peor. And, and the scene is sort of, you know, Balak rubbing his hands together and saying, all right, remember, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay you a lot of cash. Go on, 
curse God's people. I don't know if you know this story, but what happens time and time and time again is that Balaam speaks. He speaks blessing upon blessing upon blessing on the Lord's behalf. So who is God really? He is a God dead set on blessing his people. I don't know if you noticed this, but there's sort of someone present in each of these three scenes. Did you notice who's present? What's the witnesses in our court case? It's the mountains, right? Each time they're up on a mountain. And so, I don't know, it's sort of maybe a, a cool little play going on here of sort of the witnesses being called to the witness stand to attest to the character of Yahweh. And can you imagine what these three mountains might say of the Lord's character? Or maybe what Mount Sinai might say about who God is if, if the Lord enabled them to speak. I imagine, I don't know, I imagine them saying something to the effect of, yeah, I was there. I saw how God treated his people. He didn't do them dirty. Even when he had every reason to, there was this thing with a golden calf, it was, it was messy, it was bad. But no, I saw God time and again show mercy to his people, rescue them and redeem them. I saw him be gracious to them. Honestly, if anything, he, it seemed like God was dead set on blessing his people. And then there's this second story that Micah is calling to mind uh, through the Lord. And so he, it's what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So what in the world is Shittim and Gilgal? Or rather, where in the world is Shittim and Gilgal? Well, Shittim was the first, um, it was, sorry, it was the last encampment of Israel on the west bank of the Jordan. And Gilgal was Israel's first encampment on the east bank of the Jordan. So here, what Micah is calling to mind is God's people coming into the promised land. And you can read about this in Joshua chapters 3 and 4. But do you know what happened? Do you know how God's people crossed over the Jordan River? It's actually pretty similar to what happened at the Red Sea, that that really big deal of, of the Exodus story. God halted the River Jordan. He halted the River Jordan upstream. Literally, the water was like in heaps. And God's people walked across on dry ground. They walked across on dry ground. And so what they did, uh, the, the Israelites at the command of Joshua through the Lord, what they did is they, as they're crossing, they actually picked up 12 stones from that dry riverbed. And when they got to Gilgal, they, they stacked those stones uh, and made a monument of sorts, an Ebenezer. For what purpose? It says in Joshua 4.24, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So who is God, really? He is a God who frees his people, redeems them from slavery. He is a God who speaks not curses, but blessing over his people. He is a promise-keeping God who makes a way when there is no way. He is mighty. He is awesome. He is slow to anger. 
and abounding in steadfast love, that's, that's who God is really. And just like wayward Israel really needs to be reminded of who God is, so do we. So how has, how has the Lord shown his kindness to you? What stories might come to mind, I wonder. So who is God really? We've explored that in depth. Now let's move on to this second question. What, is, what does this text tell us about who we are, really? Who is man, really? In verses 6 and 7, we see a, a, a new set of quotation marks. I don't know if you notice that in your, in your text, but why is that the case? Well, here, Micah is no longer speaking on the Lord's behalf. He's actually speaking on the people's behalf. He's kind of communicating their heart, their response to God. So what do the people have to say? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? I don't know if you notice what just happened here, but what's going on is we have this supposed worshiper, right, trying to find out what the cost is of the Lord's favor. Continuing to increase the price, increase the, the greater and greater sacrifices. And so just to review what we just read about in these previous verses, God has reminded his people of his heart for them his desire for relationship. He has called to mind some of the most beautiful and mighty acts that he has ever done on their behalf. And Israel's response is to reach in their back pocket, pull out the billfold, and to start to leaf through the Benjamins, laying them on the table. It's as if they're saying to Yahweh, all right, what's this going to cost me? What's this going to cost me? What, what do you want? Burn offerings? What, what do you want? Calves a year old? <laughs> what do you, Lord, you want thousands of rams? Tens of thousands of rivers of oil? What do you want, my kid? What do you want, my firstborn son? What do you want? What's your price? It might be hard to hear, but this, this right here is, is actually the heart of man. This is our sinful nature on full display here. Israel keeps digging in the hole they're in. And rather than turning to God in repentance for what they've done, they turn to him as if he could be bought. I don't know if you can imagine discovering infidelity in a marriage and the offending party saying to their spouse, well, what if I got you a, a new car? What if, uh, what if I sent you on vacation anywhere you want? You know, would that, would that make us square? Would we be, would be even then? Would that, would that appease you? See, hidden in Israel's response here is actually an underlying belief that it's not man who needs to change, but God. As if, as if he's the one who simply asks too much. He's the one who needs to change. Which honestly, is as ridiculous as a spouse thinking that fidelity to their partner is just a little too much to ask. As if that's, 
needy somehow. And I realize how ridiculous that sounds, but that's exactly what's going on here. Because God's people have not kept their covenant promises to him. They've done the exact opposite. And they don't even know how to repent correctly. Even their apologies are offensive. They they still don't get it. But are we so different? Don't, Don't we all too often make light of our own sin? Don't we all too often just totally forget God's faithfulness, his goodness, his kindness to us? Don't we all often maybe neglect real relationship with God and instead treat him transactionally? I think, I think the longer that we walk with the Lord in our lives, the, the more we're formed by his word, the more we kind of come to realize that we're not better than the Israelites. We are the Israelites, right? What they've, what they've done, what we have done, is so much more than a repeated punch in the arm. We've, we've literally betrayed God by our sin. And how does God deal with us? How does he respond to our betrayal and our sin? What is, what is the real cost of the Lord's favor, of totally restored relationship with God? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's John 3, 16 and 17. So the cost of the Lord's favor is not not the blood of our offspring. It's not our firstborn, but his own. Jesus for the joy set before him endured the cross. And that joy, friends, is is us, right? What the Lord requires of us is not to come bearing sacrifices, but rather to receive the sacrifice that he has made on our behalf, to receive Jesus, to receive his righteousness with, with the empty hands of faith. And friends, this this right here, this is the gospel. This is the kindest thing that anyone has ever done for you. And so we come to verse 8, the really, really well-known, most well-known verse of Micah. You've seen it on cross stitchings and on our series slide and and all over the place on bumper stickers. But we have the the benefit of seeing it in in its context. And so here's what it says. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And friends, the the Lord hasn't just told ancient Israel what is good. He has shown us through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus 
And, and really, all the Father requires of us, he provides to us through his Son. As we sing in that hymn, Come Ye Sinners, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you. This he gives you. And so we are called first to believe in him, to, to simply receive Jesus, but also in response to the Lord's justice and kindness and humility that we see on full display in Christ. We're, we're called also to, to joyfully follow suit, right? To, to do justice as God does justice, right? To, to never exploit our neighbor, never exploit the, the poor or the oppressed, but rather to live our whole lives for their good, to, be, to, to, to love as we have been loved, and also to forgive as we have been forgiven. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This verse is well known for a reason. It's because it's, it's one of the most beautiful and concise summaries of godly living, right? But it's just three points, right? Three things. But as simple as those things are, none of us, not a one, can do even those three things perfectly. And so sort of the, the big onus of this passage of Scripture and, and really all of Scripture is a call to dependent relationship with the Lord. I don't know if you noticed those last few words, right? But we're not, we're not just told to, to do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly. We're told to do all of these things, key words, with our God. With our God. Oh, my people, with our God. Friends, what we're, we're called to, what we're invited to, is, is not to, to bring sacrifices, it's not to bring your perfect record or your, you know, fantastic behavior. It's, it's not your have-it-all-togetherness that the Lord wants. What he wants is you. He wants you. Will you receive him? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you, you Lord, are so patient with us. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness, that you are so, so kind. You are so good to us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that even though we, every one of us, Lord, we are a sinful mess, we thank you, Lord, that we can say that we are your mess. Thank you, Lord, that in Jesus, you have made a way when there was no way, just as you made for the Israelites through the Red Sea, through the, the River Jordan. All we have needed, thy hand hath provided. Most of all, our spiritual need, Lord. So we, we give you the glory, Lord. We ask that you would continually fill us with your Holy Spirit and enable us to enter every area of our lives and to show your mercy and your kindness to those we encounter. Not just through our words, but Lord, by how well we love others, how well we love our neighbor. Keep us humble, Lord, and, and keep us near by your mighty hand. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.